thank you guys for uh, joining for the casual conversation today. And uh, of course, all three of you uh, are involved in leading in missions here at Southeastern, teaching missions. But you're also part of this conversation because you've served overseas in more than just a short-term mission trip sort of capacity. So uh, to the degree that you feel like you can say that, uh, where have you served in the past? So yeah, my wife and I um, served for three terms with the International Mission Board. We served in Central Asia and we served in Western Europe, um, working with refugees, immigrants, work with national churches uh, as a way to facilitate church planning with unreached people groups. Okay. So uh, my wife and I went through the 2 plus 2 program here back in the late 1990s and we served in South Asia, a Muslim country in South Asia. And then after that uh, term was over, we uh, worked, or I worked actually with a faith-based mission agency for about six years uh, serving in varying capacities around South Asia. For my wife and I, uh, kind of overseas began for us in 1994, uh, going over to the Middle East and uh, all over the place. But then we were part of the Two Plus program, and so it's been about four years with the International Mission Board over in the Arabian Peninsula. Okay, so. great, great. Well, I don't know your stories, but uh, my story, like a lot of evangelicals, uh, when I was growing up, missions was something that we prayed about. And every once in a while we gave to. And as a, as a senior in college, I can remember reading John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad for the first time. And that really uh, began my process of sort of seeing the Great Commission as something I needed to take ownership of personally. Uh, I wonder, what, what's your stories with that? At, at what point in your spiritual journey did you become burdened enough for missions that you thought, I might actually go overseas and serve as a full-time missionary? Yeah, I think, uh, at least for myself, uh, when that began was uh, just a few years ago when I was still in college. Um, just kidding, I'm a little bit older than that. But, uh, no, it was in college. It was uh, really uh, a process beginning uh, the end of my freshman year, kind of beginning of my sophomore year. Uh, a couple things came into play. Uh, one, just began to be burdened for the people that lived in my hall. Uh, first, it was, it was just evangelism, that, that I need to really be really vocal about my faith. Um, a couple key figures in that were, first of all, my brother. Uh, he, uh, I wasn't necessarily uh, doing the best job of living out my Christian life early on, and uh, he kind of pulled me to the side um, at this retreat, and he said, you need to make a decision. He said, uh, being a, a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, it's, it's not just something that you do. It needs to be who you are. And uh, so that began to form and shape me, and then I had a guy that decided to pour into me for the first time, um, and he pulled me to the side and he said, you seem to know a lot about the Bible, but uh, you probably need to love as much as you know. And uh, when I got up off the floor, um, I, he, uh, he then handed me two books. Uh, he handed me uh, Richard Foster, Celebration of Disciplines, and uh, then an older book, uh, In the Gap, by David Bryant, uh, which talks about becoming a world Christian, having a world point of view. And so that began kind of my journey and then, like I said, in 1994, had the opportunity really for the first time uh, to go over to the Middle East for about nine to ten weeks. And so that kind of God used a lot of those different things to shape and begin me really on a lifelong journey that I'm still on at this point for missions. Great. George, what about you? Yeah, so I, I came to faith in Christ a little bit later. I was a, a senior uh, in college when I came to faith. And uh, the man who uh, is a, actually a chicken farmer that led me to faith, a very evangelistic man and um, he took me under his wing and was discipling me, had me out sharing my faith literally the week after I came to faith myself. And um, 
you know, so I was always a part of an evangelistic outreach in a local uh, level. I went on and I was a high school history teacher for several years and uh, teaching social studies. I still remember um, back in uh, my, my alma mater, the high school I graduated from, I was preparing a, a geography lesson. And this was a couple of years after I'd come to faith. And as I was preparing cultural geography lesson for East Asia, the categories of, of Buddhism and Hinduism and Shintoism and all of these things really began to hit me. And, and I started thinking, well, who's telling I'm going down the street and telling people. Who's telling these people? So I went to a, our, our pastor and asked him, what do I do about this? And he said, well, start, start in your backyard and let's work from there. And we lived, my wife and I lived on the edge of uh, housing projects. And so we started a, a children's ministry, cross-cultural children's ministry for a year and ministered to those kids. And then at the end of that time, um, I went on my first short-term mission trip uh, to uh, Central America, came home from that, and that just really radically uh, shaped me. Uh, so uh, through a, a series of, of people speaking truth into my life, I ended up coming here for the 2 Plus 2 program, and it was here where I really came to understand what it meant uh, to engage the unreached and the importance and the priority of reaching the unreached. So um, the 2 Plus 2 program sent me to into the, what, what's known as the 1040 window yeah. to do that. I love the, uh, the William Carey part of the testimony exactly. that you liked other cultures and geography and yeah. then the Lord turned that well, into you know, a great Carey was, calling. Carey was reading Captain Cook's journals, right. yeah. map in one hand, Bible Absolutely. in the other, and yeah. um, it just makes sense. Absolutely. So, so I, um, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, so missions were part of, part of my conversation growing up. But I didn't become a Christian until I was 19 years old. Um, came out of a, a, a background where I actually spent more time with lost people than anybody else. So soon after I became a Christian, God really burdened my heart for the lost uh, because I didn't have any other friends. And so I began to share my faith um, with people. And so that sort of birth, like Greg was saying, birthed evangelism as um, part of, of who I was um, from, a, <clears throat> from early in my Christian days. And then as, I, as God called me to the ministry to be involved uh, professionally, um, I really never considered missions as, a, as an outlet or, or anything like that. In fact, I, um, I barely even remember that I took a missions class when I was in seminary. Um, but uh, when, when um, I served in several churches and then when uh, we went to be pastor from a small town in South Alabama, um, I had an opportunity to travel overseas a couple of times with... Um, uh, different mission trips, and then went to actually went to um, Israel as part of just a, a pastor going to the Holy Land tour. And God used those experiences and my background because I'd known conversations about missions to really stir my heart for the needs around the world and the needs of the nations. And I didn't know what to do with it. I was reading on a trip to uh, South America. I was actually reading Jim Elliot's biography, and um, was really struck by Elliot's passion for to get the gospel to the nations or get the gospel to those who'd never heard. I remember being on an airplane flying back and really arguing with God that what I was doing in Alabama was more important or very important. And, um, you know, God just basically reminded me that, uh, you know, if I left that spot, that there would be people who'd come in right behind me. They'd never miss a beat and they'd keep going. But that there were large groups of people around the world who didn't have access to the gospel. So God began a process in our heart of really praying through uh, what it meant to live 
own mission uh, as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a family. So we prayed about God, if He ever let, let us out of that church, leading us to some place in America that was less reached. And uh, we started, like George was saying, we, we started some, some missionary ministries in our community. We had uh, my wife would do a Bible study in a little uh, trailer park uh, in, in town uh, that was ethnically and economically different from the church that we pastored. Um, and we just tried to implement whatever we knew about missions in that in that process of, of sharing the gospel, trying to make disciples and helping people grow in Christ. And eventually we, we came to the point as a family and just the Lord confirmed it's time now to lift yourself up and move geographically to a different place. And so when we, when we moved overseas, um, this, without trying to sound more spiritual than we are because we're very, um, very raw at that point of what, what we were doing, uh, we tried to continue what, we'd always, what we had been practicing for the last several years and then moved it into a different location overseas. Uh, of again, trying to share our faith, live life with lost people, live life with believers in discipling relationships to raise them up in the Lord. And uh, so that's what the Lord just used. Experiences in America use our testimonies to place in us a passion for, uh, for those that needed Christ. And then as we learn little steps along the way, this is how we just sort of did it as we, as we experienced life together. Yeah, great. When I think back over the last six or seven years, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that uh, between the four of us, we've had dozens of hours of conversations about uh, missions, spirituality, spiritual formation, sort of the things we're talking about today. So just briefly from each of you, what what do you see as the relationship between uh, maturing as a Christian uh, and being missions-minded or being Great Commission-minded? Well, you know... I think a natural process or the natural progress of the gospel in your life has to turn you outward. Um, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served but to serve, uh, to give my life uh, as a ransom for many. And I think the process of the gospel in your life naturally turns you outward. Now, what you do with that, I think, is a, maybe any measure of things that you could do. You could... You know, it could lead you to pastor, worship pastor, youth pastor. But for our purposes here, I think it leads you to, to understanding that the, the, the deeper you grow spiritually, the more you understand how important it is for other people to know Jesus. And it's not a... Missions becomes a, uh, not a win-loss of how many people can I count to my, uh, to my tally, but it's, as, as John Piper says, it's... it's helping others find their joy in God. And as you're growing spirits, finding your joy, you can't help but tell people. Like, I like to brag about things I like about, whether it's fishing or hunting or Auburn football or Southeastern Seminary or whatever. And, and the, the, the more joy you find in the gospel, the more joy you find in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that spills out. And I think that's what drives you to mission and then drives you in your missionary activity. I think the converse is true as well. You know, Paul says in his letter to Philemon in verse 6 that he's, he's praying for Philemon. He says, I pray that you may be active in the sharing of your faith so that you know and understand all the good things that you have in Christ. So, yes, spiritual formation leads to engagement in mission, but also getting involved in mission develops you and cultivates uh, spiritual maturity. So when I think about the gospel, you know, really kind of... Uh, uh, try to look at the gospel and its effect in our life in a comprehensive way, that we're saved 
from sin by the gospel, and most people won't argue with that, but we're also saved for God, into God's church, and ultimately onto God's mission. And so when I communicate the gospel with someone or when I'm trying to disciple someone, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to move them to understand that the gospel is not just about you being reconciled to God, but you're being reconciled to God is about you fulfilling God's purpose for your life, which is ultimately being on mission with him. Yeah, and just to dovetail off that, I mean, part of that which is so true that the more that I'm engaged in mission, the more I'm engaged in making disciples through evangelism and mission, to be quite honest, I come face to face with my own fears, my own inadequacies, and it drives me back to say, what kind of person am I? You know, I just came back last week from uh, South Sudan. And, you know, so part of that is the gospel going into new places. And so you have the weighty responsibility of just communicating the gospel. But then also you're following up through discipleship. And so, you know, every morning and every evening I'm going back saying, Do, who am I? What kind of person am I? Because I don't want to just be saying something. I want to be that person as well. And, I, and you know, honestly, I don't think I could say it um, really any better. I was flipping through my scriptures that in my life it really comes down to kind of Matthew 22, kind of 36 through 40, when Jesus is responding to the teachers of the law. And he kind of forms this, this interesting dynamic of the greatest command, yet he calls us to love. You know, love God with our whole being and then love your neighbor. And I have a little note in my margin. You know, what is our duty? What's our obligation as believers? Is it to do something like the Great Commission, or is it to be? And I just have a yes next to both. We're supposed to do and be, and I think it... Of course, you see that in the Great Commission. And so the relationship between mission and spiritual formation, I think it really is just kind of, kind of one and the same, that you can't go far in one without being involved in the other. You know, I think that's, that's something that we, <clears throat> these guys are exactly right, something that we miss, and you and I have had this conversation before as well. Um, m- many times we, we think that we, we grow spiritually and that we're formed spiritually in isolated events, right. in my right. quiet right. time, yeah. in my right. prayer closet. Yeah. Those are very important. Right. And, but we want a safe spirituality mm-hmm. when the reality is uh, being right on the edge and staring darkness <laughs> in the face yeah. pushes you to appreciate the glory of the gospel and the light of the gospel. Many of us have been Christians so long we forgot what it was like to be lost and what it was like to be hopeless. Yeah. And you talk to someone who's never experienced it or perhaps never heard the joy of the fact that the God of the universe is not your enemy, but he longs to be, to adopt you into his family, longs to, to, to be in a loving relationship. And then you watch someone either walk away and not understand it. Maybe Jesus in the rich young ruler's heart was broken when the man walked away and he realized, you don't, you don't know what you're missing. I can't believe what I have here in, in, in the gospel. And so being on mission drives you in and forms you spiritually. And it is this crucible. And I think that that's where, that's where the Great Commission comes in. Because we're not formed spiritually in safe environments. Right. We're formed spiritually as we're, as we're walking in the difficulty. We face our fears. We face our confidence. We have to learn a foreign language, which is terrible. When I have to eat food that I know is going to taste bad when it that's goes right. down. And, and when have it to comes be, back up. Yeah, when it comes yeah, back right. up, you know. Both, both that's, right, that's right. <laughs> and so I think there are these, these, these moments where God forms you to yeah. love Him, to appreciate the gospel, mm-hmm. to love other people in a way that, that just just fits together that we can't do in a safe way. You know, it's like in, um, in, in, in the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, we're talking about Aslan. 
you know, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's why that's why it is with spiritual formation. You form not because it's safe, but because it's a it's yeah. good. God is good. That's right. Forms you even in these these crucibles of testing, which the Great Commission allows us to experience. I think in a seminary environment, you know, we have a lot of really competent people here, mm-hmm. students, faculty, and and as long as you're ministering in uh, the same culture uh, that is your birth culture. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, you can really get away with doing things in your own strength. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. Good absolutely. And you know, it's. I think back to being on uh, mission with a, a team from here at Southeastern in Nepal this past May. And there were several times where I realized that you know what, if God doesn't show up, yeah. I'm done. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. it it drove me. To my knees, it drove me to the Word early in the morning, and and crying out in desperation, needing mm-hmm. uh, to be empowered, and and so with that being on mission, really is the context that you're going to grow the most because you get in places of desperation, places where you need, where oftentimes we, um, you know, will operate and will function in these environments out of our own strength and. Right out of the gifts that God gave us, but not necessarily drawing on that power. Well, George, you mentioned discipleship a few minutes ago when you were telling your story a little bit. I know that you've discipled a lot of young men, even some young men who've come to Southeastern Seminary, and now they're not young men anymore. They're church planters, they're pastors. What do you, uh, what, when you're discipling someone, what do you do to sort of instill in them uh, a heart for cross-cultural ministry? Right. Well, I think back to the way that I was discipled. You know, Ronnie Brassfield, that chicken farmer, I came to faith in Christ on a Friday night, and on Tuesday he said, hey, let's, let's uh, spend some time together. And we ended up in a garage in Winder, Georgia, and this guy's feet are sticking out from under the car, and Ronnie starts to share the gospel with this guy, and he gets about halfway done, and he says, and George will tell you the rest because he just experienced this. Oh, wow. So he just threw me under the bus, right? Oh, like, literally, Marco, what, under what, the car. Yeah. What do I do here? Um, that's the way that I was discipled. It was on mission with God. And so, you know, just anecdotally, I think about one of the guys uh, that's just a dear uh, brother um, to me, and the Lord has, has gifted me with a guy named Josh that I've been able to invest in for about the last decade. He came to faith in Christ and then was part of our Sunday school class back in Georgia. Uh, and my wife and I mentored he and, and his wife. Well, he was a banker, very successful banker. And initially, the thing that I worked with him on is to recognize that his work environment was a mission field and that he needed to be active in sharing his faith there. And so he systematically began to strategize, how can I engage people there? But there was one time in particular that we were coming home from a conference, and at this point in time I was working all over South Asia, kind of coming back and forth. And uh, we were on the way home from a conference that we had gone to together, and uh, Matt Redmond's song, Missions Flame, comes on. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever heard that song, uh, it's, it's a really good anthem for missionaries. And Josh looks over, and, and well-meaning, he compliments me, and he says, Hey, George, every time I hear the song, I think of you. And I sat there for a moment, and then I thought, and I said to him, I said, Josh, that's really sad. I said, I'm wondering why every time you hear this song, you don't think of you. And, you know, it hurt his feelings initially, uh, but a couple of weeks later he calls me and he says, you know, you're right. He says, it shouldn't be just me thinking of you as the one who's going. He said, uh, I want to go with you. 
And about three months later, he was in South India with me, sharing the gospel with uh, one of the largest unreached people groups in South Asia. And it pushed him to the edge and through a series of events uh, from that. Now he's a, a multi-ethnic church planter. Yeah. Um, so you know, God, yeah, God was gracious in that. That's good. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, Greg, I know that you're one of the pastors at your church. What are some ways that local churches can spiritually prepare members who are contemplating a call to cross-cultural missions, or maybe they've even surrendered to that and they've got that clearly in their future. What is it that churches can do to spiritually prepare people for that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start off, but I'm sure these guys have other things to throw in there as well. Um, I don't think there is a formula for it, first off. Uh, every every church body is different, and in some ways every person heading overseas, it's going to be a little bit different. And so I think being aware of that. Um, but I do think there... One of the things, um, we happen to be a church close by the seminary, which uh, has uh, many good points, but uh, sometimes not so good points. Um, and uh, I, I think one of the things is um, helping, helping people that are contemplating or they are heading overseas of understanding that it's not simply a future work they're preparing for. Um, and, and I think we're still figuring this out as a church, that we want to say, you know, a lot of what you do over there should be, as Scott was saying, a continuation of what you're doing here that although uh, many of our, our people are connected to the seminary and they're getting trained and equipped biblically, uh, theologically, in, in some really deep and good ways, that if it just stops there, um, you're going to have a wake-up call because getting on an airplane doesn't make you a missionary. Yeah. Um, and so uh, one of the, some of the things we try to do is uh, we, we want to identify those that are considering or are heading overseas uh, within the next uh, one to two years uh, and then we begin to hopefully intentionally, what we try to do is intentionally put them with uh, strategic leaders uh, in our congregation. Um, hopefully those that have had some missions experience, although not always, uh, could be just really mature men and women in the faith that have a passion for the Lord and for lost people and the nations. But one is just spending time. Uh, secondly, uh, we want to provide venues, uh, whether it be, uh, of course, we live in an area where there are refugees, we live in an area where go to Walmart, you can hear the languages of the world, uh, of just putting them in places where they are actively engaged in meeting people, building relationship, sharing their faith. And to be quite honest, Nathan, one of the things I've seen uh, in my own life, but also in many, is not simply to the point where they're sharing their faith. Uh, a lot of our people can do that. They can get to the point where I can initially share my faith. The hard part is, how do I keep up that relationship? Yeah, right. right. Especially when they say no. Yeah. And so I think that's where we're trying to figure that out. How do, how do we help our people to continue to cultivate, not just the friendship initially, but what happens after I've known this person for five months or a year, and I've shared the gospel, and they haven't really been warm to it. Because overseas, especially in a lot of the contexts that we've served, uh, typically it's not the first time or the 50th time. Um, and so you have to actually care about these people. And, and so really putting it, them in that context, we also uh, spend a lot of time for those that happen to be married. Uh, we really want them to focus on their marriages um, because whatever weaknesses, whether it be personal sin patterns or issues in your own marriage, they may be small here, but if you don't address them here, uh, they're going to become huge overseas. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, we, we often send them to marriage conferences. Uh, we... Uh, we want to train our people how to pray um, because prayer, although we love to say we all spend um, three or four hours like you do every morning right, uh, right. in prayer. Uh, <laughs> right. we, um, I'm, I'm praying internally right now. That's right, yes. Yeah. Never stop, never stop. Um, 
But, uh, you know, so we, we train them a lot on how do you spend half a day of prayer? Uh, how do you even set aside that much time? And then how, how do you invite your spouse if you're married into that? And so just really being intentional, especially that last year or so, um, of, of getting beyond just the head, hopefully down to the heart and even somewhat to the feet uh, of being on mission. And so we put some things in place at our church, as I know a lot of the churches in the area do, but we're still learning. We still have conversation all the time. How do we do that? Uh, How do we do that better? Yeah. You guys want to add anything to that or... A couple of things that I would just add, just pigtail or, or, or pigeon tail into into what Greg pigtail, pigtail, ponytail, whatever about barbecue. Whatever tail, tail. That's right. Yeah. So, um, I'm not even sure where I was going. The comment where you can go with that. The conversation got real casual. Um, yeah, I, one of the things that, that, I, that my wife and I learned very quickly overseas. Um, is that you lose a lot of the tools for spiritual formation overseas that you have in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Podcasts or uh, even being in in an English, exciting English worship service or any of these tools that you have for formation. And one of the things that uh, we try to to work with, and I think churches can can work toward is actually teaching people how to read your Bible, That's right. yeah. how to read it theologically, but how to read it devotionally, so that reading yeah. the Bible yeah. alone feeds your soul. Right. Um, you know, that's such a it's sad to say, it's kind of a lost skill among many evangelicals. Sure. We need, you know, we need the Bible and David Platt, the Bible and John Piper, the Bible and someone else. What we need is the Bible, but there are two reasons for that. One is for your own soul. You you need to be able to to read the Bible, to read it prayerfully. Let it shape the way you pray. Let it affect your your spirituality, your holiness. But for the people you work with and disciple overseas, that's all they're going to have. And if you don't know how to do it yourselves, then you can't do it with other people. Yeah. And you basically can lead them to Christ and say, well, you know, if you had somebody's podcast or you could log on to Southeastern Seminary's chapel, I, I could help you grow spiritually, but really, you know, all you got is the Bible and I can't help you there. And so wow. we, I think that's a that's really a skill that churches can help um, help with. And, and I think, it, again, there I think there are two advantages that pick that up. Um, and I would encourage our students to, just to do that right. I and mean, learn to read the yeah. Bible and uh, and use it well. We just nailed down on this point. Scott and I were having a conversation you even this week. Tail on it? Uh, well, no, I'm not. I'm not a fan of pigs. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were talking about this, and and I think it, it is true that um, hopefully it happens here, but but even more so in our churches that. Uh, one of the best things we do here, I mean, we do teach our students how uh, doctrines, doctrines of the faith, we teach them uh, great, solid theology. Um, and we do teach the scriptures very well, but over the years, whether it's my own in my own life, um, or as I've been involved here even of being a part of numerous trips overseas short term and even engaging with our students and missionaries overseas, uh, one of the things that I'm finding that, that's honestly concerning is, is kind of what Scott's saying, that... I want our, our students or even our pastors going into, into whether it be rural or urban settings here in the States, to, yes, they need to know the doctrine. They need to know the theology. They need to know the, uh, the context of the scriptures. But, but they actually they need to know the Bible. Yeah. They need to know when someone asks a question, they can say, you know, I'm not going to give you the doctrine to go to. Let me take you to this story in the scripture. 
And, and I'm not going to answer it for you. I want the Bible to form and shape you. And, and, uh, and I've become aware more and more of the need for our people to just fall in love with the Scriptures um, and have a real joy of reading it and not reading it only for information or how do I respond to an objection, although those are great things. But how does the Bible form and shape me? So therefore, when I'm sitting with somebody and they have a real question, I can say, you know what, I, let, let me just take you here. And, and what is the Lord saying at this point in this passage? And so really just understanding what the Scripture says and does. Um, and, and I think that, as Scott said, he said it well, it, it's really a lost art form, um, unfortunately, on the whole. That's not true everywhere uh, sure. with everybody. But, but I've just become convinced of that, that, that we just need to fall in love with all of Scripture and, and let it form and shape us. You know, sort of the word, the, the phrase I have in my mind while I'm hearing you all talk about this is, the importance of a word-shaped yeah. spirituality, yeah. you know, so that when those other things fall away, yeah, we right. still have the Word of God. Mm. Well, Scott, what are we doing at Southeastern to specifically uh, give missions students a word-driven spirituality that they can take with them on the field? Yeah, well, I don't want to undersell the fact that we have godly professors teaching classes that are focused and have you read the Bible. I think it's a, it's an you know, and, and you and I have had this conversation, we've all talked, spiritual formation is, um, is not something that you force on someone. The disciplines are not something that form you spiritually. They're tools in place that, that allow the Spirit to form you. And our classes, uh, in the interaction that we have with, uh, with faculty, the chapel services, these are opportunities for formation. You can yeah. cheat them. Um, by not taking them seriously or by reducing your study of, of the Word or your, you know, something, you can reduce that to, to a merely academic process and you'll miss another opportunity for it. So I, I wouldn't ever want to sell that short. Chapel services, I would think the same way. We have great worship. We have good Bible teaching. And so these are some things that are, are always opportunities for, uh, for spiritual formation on our campus. Um, but the other things that we, that we do have access to uh, on, on, at Southeastern, we obviously have through our student life, we have our D groups, which is a great spiritual formation yeah. uh, process. And, and Drew and his guys do a fine job, not simply of giving you the tools to sit through you know, a semester or two semesters of Bible study, but the, uh, the goal of that is, okay, now that you've done it, now turn around and disciple someone else. Well, that's the source of, yeah. of spiritual formation. How can I right. turn that back around and and learn as I'm working with someone else. I grow spiritually. The Lord forms me um, uh, in that. And then we have a, a different, uh, different other types of, of, of events. When we have a global missions week or we have another missions event, we try to bring missionaries on campus who are walking with the Lord and hopefully in some ways their, uh, their passion for God, their passion for the nations rubs off and really shapes, helps to shape um, our students, and so there, there are opportunities that are available. Yeah. But taking advantage of them is a personal responsibility. Um, yeah. You can't force spiritual formation on someone. It, you know, again, it's, it's it's about making making room for it in your own life. And so I think that's something that we really need to uh, to remember. Yeah, Nathan, I remember when when I came here in '97 as a student. I'd been walking with the Lord for about six years, and I'm sitting in you know New Testament class and Greek and all this, and knew that I was preparing to go and, and work among an unreached people group, and it just all of a sudden hit me that I'd read pretty much all of the Bible at some point or another in those six years that I've been walking uh, with Jesus, but I'd never read the Bible through. Mm-hmm. 
And as a student here, it, it, I became convicted about that and started as a, a daily discipline reading through whole portions of the Scripture in order uh, to prepare myself because I was going to be teaching this book, right? I'm going to be working with people who have no concept, no idea of what this book teaches, and I need to know it um, start to finish. And obviously, you know, you can't get to the point where you know everything, um, but uh, I, I really wanted to cultivate that discipline of working my way through the Scriptures, um, and I carried that out onto the field with me, and it's, it's been very, very shaping in my life. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear you mention our, our D groups. I think that the uh, the Office of Discipleship and Spiritual Formation is one of the best kept secrets yeah, at Southeastern sure, yeah. among our students for a, a way that they can get involved in right. intentional discipleship groups. Um, I know that the CGCS, you guys also have started a missionary formation society. That's right. Uh, what's that? What's the, what's the purpose of that? Yeah, well, uh, just in brief, I mean, one of the things we... We've done a great job over the years, of course, uh, international missions on the seminary level and even pulling in North American as well. And so, uh, but, but on the college level, um, we, had, we hadn't, honestly, we hadn't been doing as, as good of a job, but, um, uh, but that's been remedied somewhat with uh, Dr. Dew and, and others are just really a passion for uh, both here and around the world. And so uh, uh, a lot of great things happening in the classroom, but, but again, training and equipping missionaries isn't just about sitting in a seat. It really is about uh, kind of getting on your feet and, and being a part of, of what God is doing. And so this uh, Missionary Formation Society, um, it's kind of, it's everything outside of the classroom. And that what we want to do uh, is provide students, one, opportunities just to rub elbows. Uh, some with other organizations and other missionaries of, of just hearing and spending time with them. Uh, I know that was shaping in my own life uh, early on, still is. Uh, but also giving them opportunities, whether it be out in the community, uh, you know, serving and doing different things, but really taking advantage of just the communal nature of mission uh, and, and using that for students that are interested in missions, especially on the college level, uh, but even for those that, uh, that are just checking it out. Where's a place that I can go and just talk about, uh, pray about, learn about, and do mission? And, uh, and so that's kind of the heart behind this Missionary Formation Society. Okay. Great, great. Um, you know, all three of us, or all four of us, are uh, members of area churches, that uh, three different churches, that, that all have a track record over the last few years of equipping a lot of missionaries and sending them to the field. And, of course, uh, missionaries normally don't stay indefinitely for 40 years right. like they did three generations ago. They're, they're coming home on furloughs or stateside assignments. So uh, what are some things that our churches can do to... Uh, minister to the spiritual needs of our missionaries when they come back to us for six months, 12 months, whatever it is, before we send them back again? Wow. Um, I think, first of all, you pray. And, and, you know, let's don't underestimate the power of prayer. The, the local church owning its missionary, and by owning, I don't mean that you possess them as much as you are possessed by what they're doing, which then would drive you to pray for your missionaries, pray for their families, uh, take interest and know what they're doing. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a powerful thing. I mean, Paul at the end of, of 2 Thessalonians says to the Thessalonian church, pray for us that the Word of God might run swiftly. So Paul puts the success of his missionary journey and the prayers of the church together. The implication being that there is a power in the church praying for missions that keeps the, 
the, that makes the ministry productive, but also keeps him protected from the enemy and everything that would tear him down. So I think praying is a, is a significant um, way. And second of all, I would say that, the, uh, that as missionaries are coming home or as we're interacting with them, we need to, to both celebrate what they're doing, but listen, let's don't pretend that, that missionaries are perfect and that they don't need uh, discipleship, that they don't need care. But, you know, missionaries as they come home from the field have, have uh, you know, been to the edge and in some ways are, are, are tired, hurt, um, whatever may go on. And I think the church, friends, small groups in the church, whatever the discipling process of your church, bringing these men and women into your small group, into your church, and loving with them, listening to their stories, uh, taking them deep in the Word, not pretending that they, you know, again, they've got it all together, so now we're going to, to suck from the missionary everything that they've got. And just realize, hey, we can invest in these guys and actually disciple them as they're ready to go and grow. And I think that's a significant ministry of the local church as missionaries come to the States. Yeah. And I think the key is that, that you don't wait until they come home. Okay. There has to yeah. be a vital connection all the way throughout the yeah. process. You know, as, as great as the International Mission Board is, um, ultimately, people are sent um, from a local church yeah. to the mission field. Right. And so a pastor doesn't cease being that person's pastor when they deploy and go and serve in East Asia or in Africa or whatnot. They're still the, the pastor. I remember how formative that was for me that my local church pastor, um, when we were preparing to go, you know, did something that's, that's old and, and a lot of people uh, kind of... Uh, don't even understand the, the purpose behind it anymore. But he called my wife and I forward before we were deployed, and, and he knew that the IMB was going to commission us. But he wanted to commission us as a church. And, yeah. and, and he got That's down great. and he washed our feet wow. in front of the whole church. And as a result of that, the church lined up behind him, and for over an hour our feet were washed by every member of that church before wow. we went out. Wow. Then when we were on the, the, the field serving overseas, my wife... Uh, gave birth to our second child. Within a week, my pastor with a deacon was on a plane and came to our country in South Asia. And I, I told him, I said, Pastor Dave, you don't, you don't have to do that. He said, well, I go and visit everybody else when they have kids. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. And so he ministered to us in the midst of that. And then when we came home, it wasn't a disingenuous ministry to us upon our return. It was something, it was a continuation of what he had been doing throughout the process. And I think a lot of times local church pastors don't really know what that looks like or what yeah, that should right. look like. But that's something worthwhile in terms of um, uh, ferreting out, in terms of figuring out what that relationship would look like. And I know at our local church, um, uh, the, the elders there on a regular basis have Skype interviews with our field missionaries while they're on the field. Uh, we have them fill out surveys that talk about their spiritual health, about their marriage, about their uh, participation in disciplines and those types of things because we don't want to get three years down the road and then have to fix things sure. that have emerged over that time. You know, I'm reminded, as George mentions that, you know, the, 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 the passage in the Scripture where he talks about the, uh, the, the pastor giving account for the souls of their people and... and um, that's, I think if, if churches would, would acknowledge and understand the missionaries that we send out from our churches are still those 
that we can give account for, that we should give account for their very souls. And so what, so that's what was actually owning. These are still our members. They're our members at large, or they're, they're related to us, and so we need to, to be doing ministry this way. And I think that helps with the formation of the, uh, the churches. It owns that, uh, supporting the missionaries as they're overseas. Yeah. I'll just say anecdotally, I know for our time on the field, um, uh, two different times uh, we had you know, our pastors and, and other people from our church come out. Um, and honestly, you know, we were living and serving in a pretty restricted area. Um, but I remember weeks ahead of time, I'd let all my friends and neighbors know, hey, people from my church back home, my pastors coming out. And it did more to extend our ministry um, than, than what had happened six months prior. And part of that was... For the first time, they understood I'd been saying, well, you know, being a follower of Jesus isn't just about me. It actually is a community of faith. And, but for the first time, they were able to see that. And so they understood that. And so for the first time, people that were opposed to the gospel because it was completely uh, other than who they were, they could say, you know what, although we disagree... I could see myself entering into a commu- another community. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was a very big thing. And so as they're saying that it is about we're, we're good at sending, but we need, to be, we need to be just as good at receiving back as churches that we're not receiving simply a, a report about what God's doing, although that's a good thing. They're actually real people coming back. Yeah. And so we need to invest in them as we send continually. And then when they come back, remember, uh, we want, as Scott said, we celebrate, but we, these are real people that have experienced real things, and so let's spend time continuing to invest and form and shape them so that they can go back out. That's really helpful. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of folks in the room right now who are preparing for missions, and, and Lord willing, a lot of folks are going to watch this on uh, the interwebs, and maybe it'll be a blessing to them as well if they're thinking about this. Uh, George, what, were, what would you see as some of the uh, unique spiritual temptations that missionaries might face whenever they're in a cross-cultural type setting. Yeah, well, you know, there's kind of a spectrum of of things that can happen when you go out. Um, you know, on on the one side, uh, you can isolate. You can you can go to the mission field and disappear and go yeah. off the map. And you know, you're not going to have people checking up on you on a daily basis. Your accountability, um, even on when you have a good team, still is lessened uh, from what it is here. And so you can really easily become isolated, and, and when you become isolated, sin patterns begin to develop and, yeah. and, and uh, flourish in a, in a bad way. On the other hand, um, I think one of the temptations is that you go, but you never really leave. Um, I've heard a yeah. lot of yeah. uh, leaders... Uh, with the IMB on the field are having a problem now because of the interweb um, with uh, people who are going overseas, but they don't really leave their families. They don't really leave behind. And, you know, there's, I think there's a good balance to be held there. But, you know, I've heard one story in particular of a friend of ours who uh, teaches in another seminary had to send a couple home because every morning they got up and they Skyped one of their parents into wow. breakfast, and every evening they Skyped another one of their parents into dinner, and this went on for months and months and months to the point where they had opportunities to reach out to lost people where they had been yeah. placed, and they were turning those opportunities down because they didn't want to miss dinner with their family. 
Wow, that's way more than I talked to my parents. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, my parents would love that. <laughs> yeah. So on the one hand, you can isolate and become so isolated that, that it becomes spiritually unhealthy. On the other hand, you can stay so connected that it's really not effective in terms of, of your mission. So those are just a couple. And I think, I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but uh, one of the things my wife tells me a lot, unfortunately, is like she says, you know, you're in task mode. Um, you know, I'm here, I'm right here. Uh, I'm like, no, 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 I just need to get this done. She said, exactly, don't forget I'm a real person. You actually need to pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and taking that, that happens oftentimes on the field. Yeah. That, that there is, it's a huge, monumental, overwhelming task before our missionaries. That many of them live in cities with millions of people that worship false gods, that believe different things, that... You know, it's a very different place, and so it's very overwhelming. There is a lot to be done. But too often, many missionaries I talk to, even when we go to modulars and things like that, um, they suffer from being too much in task mode. And they forget that it's actually not about ultimately the task, although the task is important, that it really is about a relationship, that it really is about love. You know, loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor. And the number one thing that we get from, even in our local church, the number one thing that our missionaries say they struggle with is prayerlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's just, a, I think that's a symptom of task mode. Yeah. That we forget that, no, I really, when the Spirit says, when the Lord says, I'm with you, even to the end of the age, yes, it's about comfort and assurance, but it's also connected to, I am with you because you need me as you are going to the nations. You can't do it without me. And so I think oftentimes one of the greatest temptations that honestly we celebrate at points, because if I can turn in a good monthly report with a lot of numbers on it, then I'm celebrated. And that's not a bad thing. Numbers are not unimportant, but we've got to forget it's not just about being in task mode, that we're being formed and shaped, and we want these people to be formed and shaped into the image of Christ. Yeah, and again, on the, the other end of that spectrum, you can you can be in task mode and think, okay, it all depends upon me. But then sometimes we'll come across and, and, and have missionaries on the field who say, oh, it all depends upon God. And so as a result of that, they lose their sense of urgency. Okay, yeah. They just go about yeah. living daily kind of life. And let go and let God type of approach. Yeah. Whereas I think William Carey brought a perfect balance to it in that, you know, that maxim that, that he stated, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. It's a perfect balance of recognizing that it's God ultimately who does the work, but he chooses to do it through means, through yeah. us. Right. And so we have to avoid the temptation of going uh, to either of those exclusively. So knowing a little bit about the temptations, which sounds like it's a combination of temptations we all face plus temptations all people in ministry face plus cross-cultural temptations, so (laughs) kind of multiplying out. What are some things that you guys did specifically, you, yourself, and your family, to cultivate a vibrant spiritual walk while you were on the field? Well, um, we stayed in the Word. I actually, um, we invested in uh, one-year Bibles for myself, my family, my team. Gave it to everybody. said, we expect you to read this thing every day. We'll talk about it. Um, uh, So we we really tried to stay word-focused. We actually uh, tried to in, uh, we were doing church planting, and we we did not want to fall in the, the, the era that George talked about being so separated, isolated from the work that uh, 
that you weren't actually about the task. And so we tried to strike a balance between an all-American, all-English language church versus a national church, national relationship. And so, but, but we knew that both were important. If it's important that our, our national brothers and sisters worship in their mother tongue, it's important that we do the same. Yeah. So we tried to, to keep that going as well. To a regular time of, of worshiping with, uh, with like-minded believers, uh, speaking English. The other thing we did as a family is we would, we would do um, house church as a family sometimes. And we really brought our kids into this process. We would roll paper out on the table. We would tell Bible stories. We'd draw pictures. We would write prayer requests. We'd hang them on the, uh, the refrigerator. And we, we tried to draw our children. And then when other people would come, what is this list on the... You have these words, and now you have lines through the words. Or our kids, when they were too young to write, we'd draw pictures. You know, if they want this, they'd draw a picture of the thing that they, they wanted. We'd would X that out so people thought, well, you're terrible parents. You know, you're Xing out your kids' art on the refrigerator. <laughs> but the goal was to enhance the prayer aspect of, of this. We tried to bring in a lot, of different, a lot of different tools and aspects. And then, of course, you have you know, retreats and, and these things that you really try to do to nurture yourself. I think it's about priority. Yeah. Just seeing that you know, me walking with Jesus and leading other people to walk with Jesus is very important. And I'll do anything I can to make that happen. Yeah. One of the the most crucial things I think and, and I couldn't have planned this or caused this to happen but I went with a friend yeah. Yeah. not only with my wife I went with a friend I remember you know when I was studying here uh, a, a buddy of mine that we used to prepare for classes and exams and everything together Pat um, he was in pastoral ministries track here and we used to every Wednesday meet um, in the, the prayer room here above the chapel and uh, we would meet and pray together for the nations for an hour. And there was uh, one particular Wednesday that first year that I was studying here that Pat stood up and he said, you know what, I think that uh, maybe I need to go with you. Hmm. And um, I said, Pat, you're in the pastoral ministries track. He says, I, don't, he says, I want to be a particular kind of pastor. Hmm. He said, well, I want to be the kind of pastor that engages the nations. And so I think that it will help for me to go. He changed programs and joined the two plus two and he and his family went out and we shared a home together and we focused on the same people group now that's not always possible but what i'm trying to display in the midst of that is teaming is really vital when it comes to spiritual formation and um and spiritual health because that isolationism can oftentimes um cause you to shrivel up right and turn Mm -hmm. inward focus uh, and there were many times that his presence and us sharing that journey together made all the difference in the world to us, in particular when we learned that my my mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. It was Pat that came and read the scriptures over us and prayed over us and ministered to us in that time. Uh, it was as if my pastor was on the field mm-hmm. with me, right, and ministering to us during that time. And so... I would just encourage people, as they think about going out, that it's not always possible to go in teams like that. Um, but at the very least, if you go to a place and you're not able to carry someone you already know, you really do need to cultivate uh, a unified, gospel-centered relationship with the people who are already there. Right. That's crucial right. Right. Um, to your spiritual development and to perseverance in that calling. That's a good point. Yeah, we did, I mean, you know, uh, multiple things but three things really uh, first of all honestly it sounds simple but we we planned for it 
uh, moving message that we wanted to walk with God when we went overseas. Yeah. doesn't always happen. Uh, and so really, for the, I knew for the first six months, here's what I'm going to be studying in the scriptures. Um, and then I took, uh, and, and to kind of supplement that, I actually took three biographies that I just read over and over. Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, uh, James Fraser, Mountain Rain, which I learned more about prayer from that man than I had a lot of other people, and uh, then David Brainerd's. Uh, biography, and so I read those uh, constantly for the first six months to a year, and, and knew what I was doing. Um, but then also, uh, not only a plan, we really we wanted our spiritual formation and our, our spiritual lives to be connected with our culture, because it wasn't just about us personally; it was about the people we were among. And so, two of the things we did, even before we knew much of the language, uh, we we memorized uh, in the language the, the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a family, and then we were able to use that. We memorized like uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, just before we even knew much about the language, we we kind of stumbled through and memorized it. And so, one, it, it, it helped us understand the language and culture. But then we used that as we met people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't. You know, in English, can I pray for you? They're like, I don't know what you're saying. And then we would light off into messed up Arabic. Uh, you know, and uh, they would stare at us. But we knew God could use that. Um, <laughs> so we would uh, we would do that the first few months, and then and then also for us it was also part of being connected to the culture. We began to use the Christian calendar much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we celebrated because Matthias is like a good party, um, and uh, but we celebrated anything and everything, not just the big holidays. But you look at the Christian calendar, we were going to celebrate something, and we invited our neighbors over, and because we wanted to show them just like they have events and right. celebrations, we right. do the same. And they didn't know that other Christians don't celebrate everything. Mm-hmm. They think everybody does. And so we use that to get to know our neighbors. It helped us be connected to the wider Christian body. But then it gave us opportunity as we learned more of the language and built those relationships to have multiple opportunities to share the gospel yeah. uh, in our daily lives. With His neighbors were a little confused when he was in the Easter Bunny constant. Well, yeah, it, was, yeah. It, was, it got weird. The tooth fairy, it got weird. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, one of the things I tell my students and, and even tell members at our church is that sanctification is a community project. That's right. And it sounds like that's just as important, sure. maybe even more so on the field than it is when you're plugged into a healthy church. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, guys, for Thank participating in the conversation, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to some folks. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Thanks, Nick. Father, we are grateful for uh, all the ways that you are moving, uh, ways seen and unseen, to uh, make each of us more like you uh, and to use us to make disciples of others. And, Father, it's our prayer that, uh, that as we think about what it means to grow in Christ, that there would be a growing sense of mission-mindedness among us, that all of us would be asking how we can use our gifts and our callings and our talents to uh, make Christ famous uh, among those who do not know him. And, uh, and we pray, Lord, that this would be true in our lives here on this stage, that it would be true in the lives of the students who we teach and the folks at church to whom we minister. And we pray that it would be true in the lives even of people who might be uh, watching this in the future on the Internet. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory for the way that you answer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.